The scripture today is from the book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. It's a lengthy passage, but I hope you'll stay engaged. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, son of Gera, the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent, it on, the, he sent on their way those who had carried it, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out onto the porch, and he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he had arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. Wouldn't this make a great movie? I mean, you have this evil, fat king. You have this charismatic, almost James Bond-like character, Ehud. And then you've got this great battle where the good guys overwhelm the bad guys. Now, now maybe you're bothered by this kind of story, and you're going, what is a story like this doing in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from this? Are we supposed to learn that every Christian should carry a double-edged sword so they can kill a fat, evil king? Is that what we're supposed to learn? Or maybe, maybe you're a middle school boy 
And you really like this story because it has, it has the most bathroom humor of any story in the Bible. What are we supposed to learn from this story? Well, we're in this series called The Unlikely, and we're in the book of Judges. We're looking at how God uses unlikely people to accomplish his purpose. And last week, we learned about this cycle that God's people seem to keep going through, how they, they keep worshiping the wrong gods. They pledge to worship the one true God. Now they're worshiping these false gods. God sends an oppressor, someone who will steal from them, someone who will put military oppression on them so they can turn back to him. And these people don't seem to get it until finally they're in so much pain, they cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. The deliverer then uh, delivers them, fights a battle for them. And, and this is what this story is. It's the story of God's deliverance through a man named Ehud. Now, the background particularly of this story is Elgon. And again, it's kind of hard to keep track, isn't it? Because Elgon is the evil fat king. Ehud is the hero, the judge, the deliverer. But the background is Elgon is the king of Moab, which is across the Jordan River to the east. And he has gone in, he has conquered part of the land of Israel. He's taken control over its trade. We're told that he had conquered the city of the Palms, which was Jericho. And every year he would go and he would collect tribute or demand tribute from the Israelites. Anybody ever see the movie A Bug's Life? Okay, if you haven't, you've missed a classic, right? And it's all about, the opening part is about how the ants are collecting all this food for the grasshoppers. And the grasshoppers will come and they will take the food away. And then the ants have to get their own food for the winter. The, the, the oppressed always serve the oppressor. And the oppressor always, always levies an unfair tax on the oppressed. That's what's happening here. And so, um, the uh, things that we learn right away from this is that God even sends a, a king who is evil from a foreign nation to get his people's attention. God will use a nation to send a message to another nation. Do you think that still happens today? Do you think God could ever use another nation to send a message to our country? God works on the stage of history. So after 18 years, 18 years, the people of God finally turn to God and say, help, we're, we're under oppression. 18 years it takes them, and you might say, what took them so long? Well, let me ask you this, how long does it take for God to get your attention? If I am stubborn, I might refuse to listen to God, but I think more often our pattern is to, to actually just willfully not hear. To not put ourselves in a position where we can hear from God. We would rather tune out or distract or not actually be exposed to the things of God because we don't want to hear his message. How long does it take for God to get your attention? So Ehud is selected to bring this annual tribute to Elgon, the evil king. Now, if you are Elgon, the evil king, who do you pick to get 
the tribute, the treasure brought to you. You pick someone you can trust. You pick someone who think, you think is on your side. How popular do you think Ehud is with his fellow Israelites? Let me put the question to you another way. Do you look forward to getting a letter from the IRS? Imagine every year, Ehud comes into your village and says, it's time to pay up, guys. And, and that payment may have come in silver or gold or it may have come in crops. We don't know exactly the nature of the tribute, but we know that every year, Ehud shows up and takes something from people who are struggling to survive. And we don't know how long Ehud had this job, long enough for Elgon to trust him. But one day, a new thought enters Ehud's mind. Why do things have to be this way? Why does it have to be like this? Why do we have to pay tribute? This is not fair. This is not right. Here's my question. Where did that thought come from? When we talk about having a personal relationship with God, this is what we're talking about. That our God has the ability to personally communicate with you. That our God can put a thought in your mind, can plant an idea in your soul that wasn't there before. And when God does this, when God puts that idea, that thought in your soul, he does it for a reason. God speaks directly to us. Now, some people will call this a whisper from God. We've used that language around here before. Are you listening to God's whispers? So you're in a store and the clerk checking you out is grumpy and you hear a whisper from God who says, that says, hey, be kind to her. She's had a bad day. Now, did that thought just, just naturally occur in your soul? Or did it come from God? Or maybe you're talking with a friend of yours who, who's not particularly religious, and all of a sudden you get this, this idea, I should invite them to church, and you're going, well, that's not something I would normally do, but I've got this idea. Where did it come from? It's a whisper from God. Or maybe you get a conviction, that's an old-fashioned word, that's something you're doing in a relationship or something you're doing at work, it's not right. And you begin to get this troubled sense in your soul that you need to stop doing it because it's not good, it's not healthy, it's not what you need to do. It's a whisper from God. Now there's something more to this, real important. Every movement of God starts with someone listening to God's whispers. Every movement of God starts with somebody listening to God's whispers. So you have Martin Luther, who was a monk, he is a professor of theology, and he is walking in a thunderstorm one day, and he's troubled. He's been troubled for about a year that he has a sense that there is a God, and he knows a lot about God in his head, but he doesn't have a relationship with God. And lightning strikes near him, 
and it is a whisper, well, not really a whisper, it's a boom from God, and all of a sudden, Martin Luther gets it, that God is present, he's real, he is near, and, and something begins to change in Martin Luther's life, and that leads to the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg Door, and that leads to the Protestant Reformation, a reformation of Jesus' church. It starts with a whisper. Or maybe John Wesley, who had been a missionary to Georgia, our Georgia. And then he goes back to England feeling utterly defeated and feeling like he's not really connected to God. He's walking down Aldersgate Street in London and he turns aside to go to a meeting. Someone there is reading Luther's commentary on Romans. I've read Luther's commentary on Romans. It's not that interesting. And and all of a sudden, Wesley reports that his heart felt strangely warmed. And he began to realize he had a personal relationship with God. And, and he begins a movement called Methodism, from which comes the United Methodist Church. Or, or you have somebody like Billy Graham, who is already an evangelist, but he's held a disastrous evangelistic crusade in a place called Altoona, Pennsylvania. And now he's scheduled to go and preach a crusade in Los Angeles, and he's filled with doubt. His best friend, Charles Templeton, has begun to doubt whether he can trust the Bible, and Templeton is trying to persuade Billy Graham to see things his way. And Billy Graham is in a, in a spiritual turmoil. He's at a retreat center in California by a tree stump. And all of a sudden, a thought enters his mind. And he begins to pray a prayer. It goes like this. This, are his, this is his prayer. Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word. By faith, I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. And Billy Graham goes to that Los Angeles crusade that's supposed to last a week, and it ends up lasting nine weeks, and it launches his nationwide and then international ministry that lasts over 50 years. Every movement with God starts with an individual listening to God's whisper. And if God were to whisper to you, could it be that God wants to start a movement? And you might say, but I'm not a preacher. I'm, I'm, I'm not a missionary. I'm not a theologian. I'm not any of these famous guys. Maybe the movement is small. Maybe the small movement that God's asking you to, to go toward actually leads to something bigger. Who, bigger. Who knows? Size is not the way God judges success. God simply invites you to listen to his whisper and see what he will do. And so Ehud listens, and it starts to lead him to formulate a plan. He has a special sword made. Um, this is uh, a machete. It is not quite the same size as Ehud's sword. His sword would have been about this big, right where my fingers are, and it was double-edged. And so it could be used when, it per, uh, when, if you stab someone, it would cut someone both ways. It would be able to enter a body pretty easily. And Ehud had it tailor-made so it would fit on his thigh underneath his cloak. This is what you call planning. Ehud has a plan. 
So it's time to collect the tribute. He collects the tribute. Obviously, he's got to have some men help him carry it to Elgon, the evil king. And so Ehud has that sword strapped to his right thigh. And, and they go, they delivered the tribute, and then they, they, they start back and they get as far as these stone carvings at Gilgal. And Ehud says to the men with him, you go on, I've got to go back and give the king a message. Now, why, why does Ehud need to do this alone? He doesn't want to implicate the other people, right? This, this may go well, may not go well. Do you remember the old hymn? Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. You know, if you walk with Jesus, part of your journey will require the courage to walk just with Jesus. Not with other people, not with the support of your friends, not with the support of your family. It will require something that only you can do alone. Now, part of what this means, if you extrapolate it out, is that ultimately the care of your soul is your responsibility. Your faithfulness to Jesus is your responsibility. And just to go one step further, it means we cannot turn to someone and say, well, it is your fault that I can't follow Jesus. You cannot say, well, I had such a bad childhood or my parents were so awful that I can't follow Jesus. You cannot say, well, this religious leader failed or this church failed and, and that's getting in the way of me following Jesus. No, there is part of your journey that you have to take responsibility for and it may mean you have to do alone. And so when Ehud goes back, uh, he tells the king he has a secret message for him. Now, how much does Elgon trust Ehud. He trusts him enough that he sends out all of his attendants, his security guard, the people who are around him to take notes, all of that. They all leave. And Ehud and Elgon are left alone. Now we're told Elgon, the king, is very fat. And there's a play on words here. His name, Elgon, sounds like another word in the Moabite language, which is Algon, which means fat cow. You can't make this stuff up. And so when uh, Ehud says, I have a message from God for you, even though Elgon, the king, doesn't believe in the Israelite God, he still respects him. He doesn't worship him, but he respects him. And so he begins to rise from his throne. Now, to get this picture in your mind, how fast do very, very, very fat people stand up? Not very fast, right? And so I want you to get this picture. Here is Elgon. He's seated on the throne, and he begins to rise, and he's bending forward. And Ehud, then with his right hand, throws back his cloak with his left hand. Remember, we're told he's left-handed. Pulls out that special made sword, and he rams it in to Elgon's belly. So far, again, the question, how fat is Elgon? So fat that the sword goes all the way in. I want you to think about that. All the way in, and the fat disappears around the handle. 
and his bowels are ruptured. This is the part middle school boys really like. This is murder. This is betrayal. I mean, Ehud betrays Elgon. But it's the beginning of the deliverance of God's people. So does it bother you? Maybe some of you say, you know, this is why I don't like the Old Testament. I like the miracles of Jesus. Nobody seems to die except Jesus in the New Testament. But one of the reasons I actually trust the Bible is because this is the real world. See, I I think what we wish would happen, and probably what God wishes would happen, would be for Ehud to come in before Elgon and say something like, stop oppressing my people in the name of God. And Elgon would say, you know, you're right. I really, I've been a jerk. And so here's what I'm gonna do, Ehud. Um, Tell you what, I'm gonna withdraw my army so there's not gonna be any more intimidation or oppression and uh, no more taxes. I'm not gonna require tribute from you and um, I am going to worship your God as the one true God and just to sweeten the deal, I'm gonna go on a diet. How likely do you think it is that Elgon would have ever said something like that? No, we live in an evil world. We live in a world where there are oppressors, where people will cheat you and take advantage of you, where people in power will abuse their power and take more than they should, where military might is extended regardless of what is right. And God intervenes in that story. And he intervenes in history and he does it over and over again. God's intervention in human history doesn't stop with the Bible. And sometimes the judgment that God brings is death. So why is this so important? Because folks, we live in a real world. And God understands that our world is not divided into neat categories, that there's nobody perfect And regardless of what you hear in any election cycle, there's no perfect politician you can vote for who is perfectly aligned with the will of God. Every vote you cast will be for a sinner just like you. Which means sometimes the best we can do is follow Jesus, ask for grace, and trust that God's at work. Sometimes that's the best we can do. And trust that if we get it wrong, there's grace for us. There's grace for us. So, having done his mission, Ehud locks the doors, goes out on the porch, and escapes. Personally, I think he had a watch like James Bond, kind of with something that came out and wrapped it around, and he rappelled down. No, I'm just kidding. But this is where the story gets funny. The servants come and they find the doors are locked. And what's their first reaction to finding the doors locked? 
the king must be relieving himself. Apparently, this is Elgon's pattern. Everybody leave. I'm going to lock the doors. I've got to go to the bathroom. And maybe, maybe even they can smell the content of the bowels. What do you have for lunch? Again, more middle school boy bathroom humor. Meanwhile, Ehud is escaping. He's gone back across the river. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And it gets to the point of embarrassment. And somebody says, maybe we ought to go in and check on him. Sure, we should go in and check on him. You got a key? I don't have a key. Where's the key? Key's down in the key keeper's office. Send somebody down there. They finally get the door unlocked. They go in, and there is Elgon dead. And the contents of his bowels all over the floor. The Moabites have lost their leader. Meanwhile, Ehud has gone back into the mountains. He's blown the trumpet called a shofar. People are coming down out of the mountains to see who has blown the trumpet of war. And Ehud, who remember, was not the most popular guy, is saying, hey, everybody, I have killed Elgon. God has given the Moabites into our hands. Let's go to war. And here's the amazing thing. The people believed him. Remember, this is not the most popular guy. And yet now the people believe him and they turn down, they go to war. And the, now the Moabite army that occupies Israel is trapped. They take hold of the fords of the Jordan River. And 10,000 Moabites who are vigorous and strong, we are told, are killed in the battle that day. 10,000 casualties. And there's peace for 80 years. Don't miss this. Ehud, who was the betrayer of Israel, betrays Elgon and becomes the deliverer of Israel. How unlikely is that? God uses unlikely people, just like you and just like me, to change history. So what, you say, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I want to ask you two questions. First, I think you have to ask yourself, am I an unlikely person? Now, occasionally, there are people who feel like they are born to destiny. General George S. Patton was one of those. He felt like he was born to destiny. But most of us, let's be honest, we didn't probably go through high school thinking, I am born for destiny. And you look at your life now, you kind of say, well, you know, I, I really can't believe I am where I am. But I want you to understand that God loves unlikely people and he uses unlikely people. And, and people around you may have thoughts that you're not thing special. Your boss may think you're nothing special, just another cog in the machine. Your kids may think you're nothing special, especially if they are 14, 15, or 16. And you may think you're nothing special. But here's what I want you to remember. Your unlikeliness does not stop God from having a purpose for your life. I talk to people and they will tell me sometimes, 
I don't see how God could use somebody like me, the things I did in college. You know, I just, I was really wild. I, oh gosh. Hey, hey, your unlikeliness doesn't have anything to do with God having a purpose for your life. In fact, that may be part of God's purpose for your life. And some of you, you've got this voice, this very critical voice in your head that says, God could never love someone like you. God could never forgive a sin like yours. I've known people who've been tormented for years, decades, because of a choice, a decision they made, and they feel like, well, yeah, God can forgive everybody else, but God can't forgive me. Here's what I want you to remember. Noah, uh, gosh, he got drunk. And Abraham lied about his wife. And then, and then Jacob is a cheater, and Moses is a murderer. David is an adulterer. Ehud is a betrayer. Unlikely people, just like the people gathered around that first Lord's Supper table. over and over that's the testimony in scripture that your failures do not stop God's love and some of you you have really bought into that false narrative that false lie that that God couldn't love someone like you and I, I want to encourage you today just to consider the possibility that you are not the exception to God's love that God is saying, I love you, and I want to forgive your past, and I want you to follow my son Jesus. And what you have done in the past, yes, will have consequences, but today I want you to give your life to me and start following Jesus. I'll forgive your sins. And maybe that's the prayer you need to pray. I want to give you a second question. Will I accept God's mission for my life? You know, when God actually plants that thought, that idea in your soul, will you listen? When you're required to go it alone without your friends and, and do something that only you can do, will you do it? When you need to stand up and call people to action, will you have the courage to actually take a risk and stand up and call this people or whatever group of people you have influence over to action to do something. Now, what I find is a lot of people's purpose is not connected to their job. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And you may work in a job and that's the way you make money to live out your purpose, which is something else. Now, maybe God does have a purpose for you at your job and it's to have influence over somebody who doesn't know him. Maybe your purpose is to do something like really volunteer as a little league coach so that you can make a difference in kids' lives. Maybe part of your purpose is to be that listening friend to someone who's really troubled. I, don't, I wish I could have a conversation with you, but I can't with every one of you individually about what your purpose is, but I know God has a purpose for your life. You're not here by accident. I remember talking to a, an older woman who was in the hospital and she had great physical problems and she said, I do not know why God has left me. I don't know what good I am to anyone. And I said, as long as you're living, God has a purpose for you. And she said, well, what is it then? And I said, well, let's be honest. We both know your daughter and we both know she needs to grow up. 
She was 44. And I said, maybe your purpose is so that your daughter can finally learn to be selfless instead of selfish. And she said, can I get another purpose? <laughs> God can use unlikely people just like you. Would you indulge me and let me ask you a third question? What's God whispering to you today? What's God whispering to you today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I wanna thank you for loving unlikely people like me and like everyone who's listening to this message. And, and then I pray that we would all be able to receive that love and that grace and live in that love and that grace. And sometimes it's so hard, those voices of them in the past are still so strong. And I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who still is just on the edge, that they would, they would take that next step and actually have the courage to believe you are a God of love and you love them and you want good for them and let them receive you as Savior and Lord. And I pray that people would find their purpose whatever that purpose is, help them live toward it. And I pray that all of us would listen to your whispers. You've got something to say, speak. We're listening. In Jesus' name I pray.